How do you create present and future value? As a trusted advisor for CFOs, private equity sponsors, and corporate functional leaders, Cross Country Consulting solves today's most pressing challenges and creates present and future enterprise value with tailored integrated solutions for accounting and risk, technology-enabled transformation, and transactions. Working as a strategic partner and collaborative part of your team, they can help you see around corners and generate value for your business. The future-ready business, in sight and within reach. Go to crosscountry-consulting.com to learn more. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. There are only a few people in the world who can say that they have made a success out of failing. Sunil Gupta is one of those people. The only person to ever be invited twice to FailCon. The author of Backable and a serial entrepreneur, we sat down and talked about the importance of failing and the lessons we can learn. This is a bit of optimism. So here's what I wanted to talk to you about. You teach innovation, which is a whole nother topic, whether innovation can be taught, but that we, we'll table that one. Yeah. Um, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> you teach innovation. And I know part of what goes with innovation is failure. Yes. And that you have to fail to innovate because it's an iterative process. We have raised a generation of kids, it seems, that are afraid of failing. If there's a group of people coming up through school who are working very hard, f- afraid of failure, afraid of looking bad, all the things, and I think that's probably, you could say that for a lot of young kids, but it's a very high-performing young generation we have for the past probably 20 years, so 30 years. And then they hit the real world, and I've experienced this firsthand, and for the first time in their lives, things aren't going according to plan. Their parents can't really fix it. So riddle me this, how do you teach failure and the importance of failure to people who are now young adults who may have not worked that muscle? Well, I think it begins by being open about your own failures. And it was interesting for me to, to, to get a call from Harvard Med School saying, hey, would you like to teach this subject? Because I wasn't smart enough to get into Harvard and I wasn't smart enough to get into medical school. Um, and one of the things that sort of drew them to me was this article that was published years ago on failure. And I'll tell you the story. I, I get a phone call. This is after two of my startups have failed. 
uh, after, you know, I've gone through ups and downs in, in my career, more downs than ups. And I get asked to keynote this conference called FailCon, which stands for Failure Conference. And it's this kick me while I'm down moment because I get this phone call saying, hey, we're, we're organizing this conference on failure and we would love for you to be the keynote speaker. <laughs> and so I do. And I didn't know that there was a reporter from the New York Times in the audience. And fast forward to an, a full length article on failure with my face as the cover of this article. And, you know, it, it is it is an article also that goes very viral. You could have Googled failure at that time. And my face would have been one of your top <laughs> search results. What ended up happening actually was I had a conversation with a, with a friend of mine who I grew up with outside of Detroit. We used to go to Temple together. And he reminded me of a story that we were told as kids. And it was a, it was a story that the Buddha told his disciples, which is that every time you know, someone feels pain, there are two arrows that are fired. One arrow is the arrow that punctures your skin. And the other arrow is the arrow where you ascribe meaning to the pain. So how are you going to find some meaning out of this was what he challenged me to do. And the way that I, I tried to do that is by emailing basically everybody that I admired. And, and I would email them the article proactively. And I would say in the email, listen, as you can see from this article, I don't know what I'm doing. But would you be willing to grab coffee, grab a phone call? And the response rate to that email was insanely high. But more importantly, the conversations were honest because it wasn't like the classic networking, hey, help me succeed conversation. It was like, I'm, I, and here's my string of failures. I'm putting it out in the open. And as it turns out, they would share their string of failures. And so it, I think it begins with that, cracking this nut that I think we always knew was true, which is that the version of the people that we admire mm today is not the version that they started out as. There were mistakes, there were setbacks, there were failures. And I think as long as we can put those in the domain over and over again, we start to realize that we can do it too. I would argue though, that you had one massive, huge advantage over the rest of the world, which is your mother. Your mother couldn't be overprotective. She taught you resilience because of her experience. I mean, mom's story is incredible. It's what drove me to write my book. It's it's what I think still fuels me every day uh, as a father, as a as a um, as an entrepreneur. Mom, mom grew up in a refugee camp on the border of Pakistan and India. No running water, no electricity, uh, but she did something really amazing. She she taught herself how to read, and the first book that she read from cover to cover was the biography of Henry Ford. And after reading this biography, she tells herself and everybody around her, I want to be an engineer with Ford Motor Company. This is her vision. It's, it's unlikely, if not impossible, but her parents get behind the dream. They get behind the vision. They, they save every penny or rupee they had. She gets on a boat, gets to the United States, ends up getting a scholarship to Oklahoma State University, of all places, graduates as the only female in her engineering class. The next day drives to Detroit, Michigan to apply for her dream job, mm. finds her way somehow into a room with a hiring manager at mm. Ford Motor Company. And this hiring manager looks at her resume and he looks at her application and he says, wait, wait a second, are you applying for the job of an engineer? And she says, yeah. And he says, well, I'm sorry, you know, we, we actually don't have any female engineers working here right now. Because this was the 1960s mm. and Ford Motor Company, by the way, is in its heyday. Mm. Like it's doing very well. They have thousands upon thousands of engineers on staff, but not a single one of them is a woman. And so in this moment, you know, my mom is, is deflated. She picks up her resume. She picks up her purse and she begins to 
walk out of the room. And then almost like in this last ditch moment, she turns around, she looks this guy in the eye and she tells him her story Mm. about all the struggle, about all the sacrifice that it took for her to get to this country, to get to Detroit, Mm. to get to this very room. And then she says to him, look, things are changing. And and if you don't have any female engineers on staff, then do yourself a favor and hire me now. (laughs) This guy is so moved in this meeting that he decides to leave and go fight with his colleagues, go fight with everybody around him to make this happen. And in 1967, she becomes Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. Amazing. So that dream and that story served your mother, but you grew up in the United States. Of a, of, a, of, of a mother who was an engineer at Ford Motor Company. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. you didn't grow up without running water, et cetera. So you didn't have to teach yourself how to read. And yet your mother somehow taught you perseverance and grit and how to endure failure. Can you tell me some of the specific things that she did? Tell me one story of something specific she did that, you know, she drilled into you. She parented you differently than the other kids in your school. Look, there, 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 is, one, there is one thing, and it's a decision, Simon, that, that I think my mom made. And the decision that she made pretty early on is that we were, you know, I was born in a town called Livonia, and we, were, we, we had outgrown the house when I was born. And we, we wanted to make a move, and there was a decision that they had made, and the decision was, do we move to a place, do we move to a town where there are a lot of Indian people? Because there was such a town. Most of the Indian folks that we knew were, were congregating in sort of like the, the Bloomfield Hills, Farmington sort of area. But there was a new town called Novi, which didn't have very many Indian people at all. In fact, we didn't know any. And um, my mom was the one that pushed for us to go to Novi, for us to go to the all-white community. And there were a lot of times when Sanjay, my brother and I would, would ask her like, why the hell did you do this? Like we're getting picked on all the time in school. We're getting bullied all the time. And our answer was, look, you got to learn how to deal with that now. Like you got to learn how to figure this out because if you don't, then, you know, you're going to grow up always wanting to sort of comfort yourself with people who look just like you. And that's just not the way that the world works. So I think that's an example of the way that I think she liked to parent, which is, I think in some ways just like throw us in the deep end. Yeah. Though it makes sense, you know, take your kids to a place where they're going to be uncomfortable and teach them to endure discomfort because that's the real world. That bit of parenting is horrific for a modern parent to choose to take your kid to a place where they're more likely to get bullied so that the kid can learn to endure difficulty. I don't know if a modern parent can do that, would do that. You know, the, the, the stories of Richard Branson, his mom dropping him off three miles away from home and t- saying, see you when you get home, so he can learn to find his way home. Well, look what that did. It, it, it made him one of the great problem solvers, one of the great entrepreneurs. Yeah. But, you know, this is the question, which is in our very uh, sincere desire to protect our children, have we accidentally over-indexed into the over-coddle and, and now the thought of throwing our kids in the deep end is just not on. We, there is no more deep end. The whole pool is shallow end. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Are you as intense as your mom in how you're raising your kids to deal with struggle and discomfort? Or do you find yourself sort of like sliding into the modern philosophies of parenting? I find myself sliding into the, into the modern philosophies of parenting. Yeah. No, no doubt about that. I do think that my job in a lot of ways is to be this conduit for her energy. How do I let that sort of come through? 
I don't quite know how to do that. Every morning I play this little game with my daughters. I ask them two questions. I ask them, what is the meaning of life? And they say, to find your gift. And then I say, well, what is the purpose of life? And they say, to give it away. Meaning of life is to find your gift. Purpose is to give it away. It's my favorite quote from Picasso. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder whether I'm doing enough to give them the grit that it would take to do that, right? It's nice to have sort of a punchline. It's nice to have a phrase, but am I sort of showing them what it would take to sort of get to that point? Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Have you noticed a difference in the first cadre of students you had to the current cadre in the way they approach risk? I think that there have been more stories out there now than there were even five years ago of people who have hit it big out the gate. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. Like I think five years ago, it was still Facebook. It was still Snapchat, but there weren't like this long tail of stories of people who were just like hit, 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 hit. And That I think has sort of given people in some ways more confidence, but I think in other ways, it has made it look easy, right? Mm -hmm. And and again, it comes back to those stories of, of failure. I used to have this slide that I would put up during my lectures, which would show the paths of people like Richard Branson, Mm -hmm. the paths of people like Elon Musk, that they had actually, they had actually failed multiple times before they actually got their first hit. I don't necessarily have as many of those stories mm-hmm. right now for some of the younger entrepreneurs. And, and I'm not saying that like we should have more of those, like mm-hmm. good for them for, for having quick success. But I think it also might set sort of a bit, a bit of a bad precedent that like, hey, it's easy. And so I think my job in some ways w- is, to, is to retain optimism, mm-hmm. right, as, as you do. But at the same time, you know, let them know that, hey, like if it doesn't happen right away, that, that's just... That's just a stepping stone to to the next thing. Yeah, I hear you and I agree with you. And the the problem is talk is cheap, right? Like we can sit here and say, you know, failure is a really important part. But the problem is, is there's now this unrealistic expectation. And there's still millions and millions and millions of businesses that are started and exist, small businesses. The vast majority will fail in the first three years. And the ones that we celebrate and put the cover in magazines and we know the names of the companies and sometimes the CEOs, celebrity CEOs, is they did become 20-something-year-old billionaires. And now everyone who starts a startup thinks, you know, I'm five years away from being a billionaire. 
Right. And one of the things I think they completely miss is that in every case, they became billionaires by accident. They were driven by something else and the money came afterwards. Um, it was yeah. an unintended byproduct. Even if they lose sight of what they do, were doing in the first place and became money obsessed later, the trajectory was very different. And so it raises this interesting question, which is a generation that's growing up with un unrealistic expectations of what it takes to succeed and even more unrealistic expectations of what success even means. You know, if you can make a few hundred thousand dollars a year, like you are blowing the doors off compared to the vast majority of Americans, whether you own your own small business or not. Millions is rough and billions is damn near impossible. I have not met a company. I've not met a founder yet who set out to become a unicorn that became a unicorn, right? right? Like that was the main Exactly objective. right, exactly right. This idea of what actually sort of makes you tick, like what actually makes you come alive. And I know, again, that's, we're getting back to catchphrases here, but bear with me for a moment because I, I think back to the first time that That'll I- will be the name of our episode. It'll be <laughs> yeah. catchphrases with Sunil Gupta. Or bear with me for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember having left Groupon and I had been at Groupon early and Groupon became, you know, quote unquote, a unicorn, although it had, it had massive ups and downs. And I remember leaving and knowing that I wanted to go start a company. What I did was just this classic, almost business school analysis. I had this spreadsheet. I had columns. I had column A was the ideas, but then column C was a competition, market size, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember going to a mentor of mine and asking her, like, "Hey, what do you think? Like, what do you think of this, these ideas? Which which stand out to you?" And she looks at the list, and then she looks at me, and she's like, "Let me ask you a question. Which of these ideas actually makes you come alive?" And I look back at the list, and I realize, like. None of them really made me come alive. But Sunil, these were your tickets to fame and stardom and unicornness. Exactly. And the story that she told me, which I continue to love, you've probably heard this one before, which is that when Martin Luther King was really stepping into his leadership role, I always forget how young he was. He was in his 20s. And he went to go see a, a, a mentor of his, a guy named Howard Thurman. And, you know, he was trying to, he was trying to sort of figure out what steps he should make, whether he should do this. And Howard Thurman said, like, don't just ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. Mm. And e-commerce did not make me come alive. Mm. And that's, and that's when I made this hard shift into, into health. Because for me, like, you know, I grew up in a household where my dad really struggled with his health. Mm. He had his first triple bypass surgery when he was in his forties. And we, we had to go through that journey with him. That to me was the thing emotionally that sort of made me come alive. How do we take some of the things that work for him and make it available for more people? You hear this a lot. Somebody was struggling, a therapist helped them. They refound happiness and they devoted their life to being a therapist so they can do the same for others. You know, when, when somebody helps us, we, we know what that feels like and we want to do that for someone else. And here you are, you lived in a household of, of emotional struggle watching your father go through these medical challenges and you realize medicine's for me because I've seen what the doctors have done for my father. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I can't get off this because I'm trying to understand it. You know, that is it randomness that you had a father who struggled with his heart and so you realize the value of medicine and you and your brother go into medicine. If we keep our kids hidden and covered in cotton wool, then it reduces the likelihood of those opportunities to be exposed to something that could profoundly set them on a path. 
of purpose. I wasn't expecting this conversation to go so deep so quickly, but I mean, where you take me, Simon, is 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 a concept that I learned as a kid, which is which is dharma. The best interpretation of, of dharma in the English language is that which sustains. It's this it's this thing inside you that you don't have to continue sort of relighting over and over again because it's just there. You know, with the healthcare startup that I ended up doing, it did fine. It didn't knock it out of the park. We ended up selling the company. I had mixed feelings about selling it because again, not fantastic outcome, not not unicorn by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm at a healthcare conference a few months later. And like there's this founder up on stage and 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 he's got he's got the company with all the rage, right? Like he's getting the articles, everybody's tuned into what he has to say. And I'm just in the audience. I'm not even speaking at this conference. I'm just sitting in the audience. He doesn't even know I'm there. And we have never met. But during QA, somebody asks him, like, what motivated you to start this company? Well, tell me, tell me about some of the things that inspired you. And he said, you know, one of the companies that I really looked at carefully that inspired me was a company called Rise. That was my company. And I guess the, the, the lesson that, that that taught me was that like, even if you don't reach your intended destination, mm-hmm. you still touch and teach people along the way, right? You still end up having this impact. And the question is, are you truly here like for the impact in that, in that one area, right? Is that, is that truly the thing that you want to sort of move the needle on? When I ask people like, what do they care about? They care about impact. I want to have impact on the world, right? But I think we have to go more specific than that. What exactly is that thing that whether or not your name is on the impact? Is it just the same to you or is it is it mm. is it are they both wins? Mm. Because if the answer to that is yes, then I get I think you're getting closer to your to your dharma. The way you describe dharma, I hear inspiration, this flame that's lit inside you that doesn't go out. But I think we're adding another layer to this because, I mean, let's be honest, this is pretty multi-layered, <laughs> which is the definition of success does include credit. I think to give up credit is selfless. And with fear of failure comes a, a, a weird selfishness because let's be honest, it's about me, my failure versus my success. I wonder if we can teach young people to endure failure when they learn cooperation and teamwork first. Because now it's now no longer my failure. It's about us. It's about us. Yeah. And it's not about me getting credit. It's about us having an impact, not me making an impact. Because I think that's also a twisted concept. Because when somebody says, I want to make an impact, well, newsflash, you're probably not going to do anything by yourself. Yeah. I want to join a team that we can make an impact. I wanna be a part of something that makes an impact is not only more accurate, it's also more attainable versus going from job to job to job to job, and you and I have both seen this, saying, I'm not making an impact, I'm not making an impact. You're missing the point, you have the word I in there. When we think about creativity and innovation, we've been told that it's sort of this two-step formula. You come up with a great idea and then you execute on it really well. But I think what you're pointing out is this, is this hidden step in between where it's not just you, you've brought in other people. It's early, early colleagues, early team members, early, early investors, early partners that are as much part of this whole thing as, as you are. And they feel that level of ownership so that by the time that you actually reach execution stage, like it's a group of people who felt like it was their idea. It wasn't just the person who came up with it in the first place. I know of one of those unicorns where when the company went gangbusters and the founders became billionaires, 
one of them, at least one of them, I, I, I only know the story from one, made a long list and sent a bunch of people that had influenced him or somehow believed in him for his entire life. He sent them a bunch of stock. Love it. Basically to say, thank you. you though you're not an investor, I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for you in some way, shape or form, whether you were a friend or a teacher or whatever it was. And I think that humility and recognizing that I didn't do this alone is the thing that's missing. And so I'm going to go back to your class now, which is in your wonderful, amazing, incredible class that you teach innovation. How do you teach teamwork? I think we teach teamwork through the idea of dependence, mm. right? Like knowing that you cannot actually do this by yourself. Mm. And part of that is trying to get people who have different skill sets together and knowing that there's going to be tension there, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And knowing that your hammer might not actually be the right way to do this is such an important part of, I think, the practicalities of starting anything. And so we have students who are coming together, but one's coming from the point of view of a med student who's yeah. been you know, shadowing doctors and, and inside the OR you have that person paired with an attorney who sees risk everywhere he looks. And now they're trying to sort of figure out like, how do we actually create this new process for deep brain stimulation with a new type of product and realizing that neither of them have the answers. Mm. So I think that, I think that you teach it just by, I think putting people together and realizing that they, they are dependent on, on one another. I tried that when I used to teach. And it didn't go as smoothly where we put uh, for the final project for my class, and it was a graduate level class, we made teams and they didn't get to choose the teams. We made the teams. And we told them that the team grade will be your grade. And we had them prepare for something. We told them what the final project was. And in the day of final presentations, we changed one of the parameters. So they had to think on their feet and work as a team. Hmm. Two things happened. One, the number of complaints I got, it's not fair that we get this grade because I did most of the work. Or it's not fair that we get this grade where, you know, blah, blah, blah wasn't helping. That's unfair. Uh, and, and just to take a quick aside, the university would explain to us how we're supposed to build teams. You don't take all your best students and put one on each. And then you take all your worst students and put one on each team. You don't evenly distribute the teams. You, I took all my best students and put them on one team hmm. and sort of like, and then like all my worst students and put them on one team and then sort of evenly distributed the others. And when I'm calling out the names of the students, you can hear them go, come on, like I'm rigging the game. And mm -hmm. I, every year I taught, not a single year did the team of, of my best students come in first. Is that right? Never, wow. not a one. Because I think this is James Sarecki's work, the team of geniuses care about themselves more. They only care about their grades. That's what motivates them. Where the, the more average kids because they're more average, they have to work together and they make better teams and they actually outperform because they actually look out for each other and work together really, really well. And we got very few complaints from those teams and they were spectacular. It was always the teams of A-type high performers that were always the most difficult, pain in the ass, and they never came in first. You know, the Marine Corps does what you talk about, where when I, I had the opportunity to visit Paris Island when I was writing Leaders Eat Last, which is Marine boot camp, one of the two places that Marines make Marines. For the first two weeks, the drill instructor told me that these young recruits 
the, all they're trying to do is work hard and make put the spotlight on themselves to prove that they are strong enough to be Marines, that they deserve to be here. Look at me. I can do this. And then after about two weeks, weird things start to happen because they start putting them in situations, to your point, that they have to work together, that, that you physically are incapable of doing these things alone, that you're going to have to start relying on your team. And one of the interesting observations is if you're one of the weak ones, the group automatically rejects you. If you're one of the strong ones who thinks you don't need the team, the group automatically rejects you. Just by sh- like the anthropology of it, where the, the cohesive unit will reject the outsiders until they learn the lesson that you'll be fine if you contribute to the group. So the weaker ones learn that if you contribute to the group, the group will look after you. Don't worry. And the strong ones learn to put their egos aside and contribute to the group. And then slowly but surely, they're brought back into the fray. And I saw it play out at the end when they go through something called the crucible, the competition, where they have to get through these crazy obstacles quickly. And I saw one of the young recruits fall back, struggling, and watch two of of their colleagues turn around. They know they're being timed. Turn around, go backwards, grab them by the webbing, and drag them. And that's the thing they taught them. They taught them that the teamwork and leaving no Marine behind is more important than coming in first. Wow. And, and so the point is, is the Marine Corps does this. And granted, the stakes are higher. And when it's life and death, you know, the lessons are easier to, to learn. But these young people who were civilians when they came off the street, who were very selfishly driven when they got there, learned the value of teamwork. And so the question is, is... Can't we teach that in our high schools, in our middle schools, in our business schools, especially in our business schools, in our medical schools, you know, like the God complex among surgeons, for example, to put that aside maybe and recognize that you keep a patient alive because of the whole room of people, not just because of you and your genius. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. You know, one of the things that I think that we tend to do when we walk into a room, especially for a presentation or a pitch or, you know, big meeting, is we tend to tell the story of me, right? The story of my resume, the story of my idea, the story of my vision. But I think the backable people, these people that I've been now studying for the past few years and bringing their stories into my classroom is, is, is they tell the story of us. 
right? How does my story and your story come together to tell our story? How is backable different than self-promotion? Because I think it's about bringing people in. It's about how do we do this together? One of the most important concepts in the book is this idea of flipping outsiders into insiders, having other people feel ownership over the idea that you've created. You know, it comes, it comes back to some of the, the principles I know you know, Simon, like the IKEA effect that we place up to five times the amount of value on something that we help build than something that we simply buy off the shelf, right? Yeah. Because we, we made it ourselves. The, the other story that I really love is in the 1940s, Betty Crocker introduces instant cake mix, right? And they, and they think instant cake mix is just going to be this huge mega bestseller. And then they're really surprised when they find out that nobody is buying this instant cake mix. And they can't figure out why. And so they hire this psychologist named Ernest Dykta to go out into the field and start interviewing customers. And Dykta comes back to the executives at Betty Crocker. And he says, I think that you have made the process of making a cake too easy, too simple, because you've basically removed the customer from the creative process. And so Dykta's recommendation is, why don't you remove one ingredient and just see what happens? And so they do. They remove the egg. So now as a customer, you have to go out and you have to buy an egg and you have, to, you have to crack and mix it in and sales completely take off because now when the cake comes out of the oven, people actually feel like they have a sense of ownership over it. Yeah. I have a slightly different interpretation on the, on the Betty Crocker story, which is they have to do work. Whenever I sort of want to quote unquote, invite people in to use your, to use your terminology, I don't make it easy. I did some work with a company where we're inviting a bunch of people to come join a, a class with me. And, you know, the temptation is to make it on an app, click, 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 you know, are you available for the dates? Can you do it? What are your qualifications? Check, 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 instant, you know, instant gratification. And we made them write essays and we actually read the essays and we made them. And so the, the people who phoned it in, we could tell and they got rejected immediately. And the people who didn't feel like writing an essay didn't apply. And the people who took the time to actually write a proper essay to say why they wanted to be in the course, those are the ones who got in. We made them do a little extra work. Now, we don't have to make it very difficult, but I'm a great believer in putting in a few barriers. So for example, I co-host a leadership summit every year, and I do it from Thursday to Saturday every year. Because I don't want it to be a business trip, which is the weekdays, and I don't want it to be a boondoggle, which is the weekend. So I screw your week and your weekend. So you have to really want to be there. <laughs> like a destination wedding. Right. It's like a destination wedding. Exactly. Right. Do you really love me? And, and so I think the idea of, of requiring people to do some work, this is a perfect full circle of where we started. Overcoddling, though instinctively, is the right attitude for a parent, which I agree. You know, we want to protect our kids as best we can and give them the best opportunities, et cetera. Every parent wants that. But the question is, are we denying them the joy of work? Are we denying them the importance of effort? And this goes not only to struggle, like, how are you going to solve this problem? Like, you fell off the bicycle, you have to get back up. But I think it's sometimes something not necessarily negative, but asking people to do a little more. You got to do a little work to feel the joy of what you've produced. In other words, impact doesn't come free. You can't just go buy a pair of Tom's shoes and feel like you've done good in the world. Like it doesn't work that way. And I think that's the parenting thing. We don't have to make all of the kids refugees on, uh, you know, and teach themselves how to read. Or be dropped off three miles from home. That's not what we're talking about here. But if there's an opportunity for a kid to put in a little extra effort to get the thing they want, like if you save half, will match the other half, and then you can have the thing you want. I think there's a there there. And it gets me wondering, perhaps the innovation class that you teach should also be taught to new parents. 
because that innovation thinking and learning about risk and effort is maybe more than starting a business. It's starting a child on a very different path. Every once in a while, when I'm writing a, a business book about how do you get other people to take a chance on you in business, right? All of a sudden, I started to see these principles that just like, this is life. Like, this is, this is exactly how I need to be a better parent to my kids. You know, like, for example, one of the things I found amongst backable people is that they, they, they really tended to surround themselves with a circle. Like there were always a trusted circle of people around them that they could go to with ideas, they could go to for career advice. And they really nurtured those relationships. Backable people did a really good job with that more often than not. And, you know, around the time that I was writing this book, I ended up going to the kingdom of Bhutan, which Bhutan is, has always been fascinating to me because they, they measure progress in the country based on what they call gross national happiness. So, you know, GDP and economic growth, they matter a lot, but they, but they all feed up into this sort of larger metric around the happiness of their people. And when I was there, I had a chance to spend time with this research team. And, and this research team has been, you know, they've been collecting this data now for decades. And I asked them, like, when you're, when you're out there and you're talking to people, is there a single question that you can ask that can give you a pretty good sense of somebody's happiness? And they said, yeah, actually, as a matter of fact, there is. And the question is, if you were in real trouble right now, who could you call and know with 100% certainty that person would be there for you? And they believe people who have an answer to that question are, are much more likely to be happy. But there was a twist. And the twist was, whose list are you on? Who can call you and know with 100% certainty you are going to be there for them? And they actually feel like if you have an answer to that, you have a higher likelihood of being happy. So in other words, it's not a line, it's, it's, a, it's a circle, right? And, and it's this idea of a circle that I think we continue to come back to over and over and over again. So yeah, I mean, the, these principles that we teach for these sort of sometimes overly broad generic topics like innovation, teach me how to act in life. And on that note, so nice to meet you. Really interesting, wonderful. If you enjoyed this podcast and if you'd like to hear more, please subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Until then, take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. How do you create present and future value? As a leading provider of specialized finance operations and technology advisory services for Fortune 500 companies, emerging growth market leaders, and private equity sponsors, cross-country consulting solves today's most pressing challenges and creates present and future enterprise value. With tailored, integrated solutions for accounting, risk, technology-enabled transformation, and transaction solutions, CrossCountry works as a strategic partner and collaborative part of your team. The future-ready business, insight and within reach. Go to crosscountry-consulting.com to learn more.